Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Did Dee and Kelly use drugs for scrying? The Elizabethan mathematician, scientist, astrologer, astute businessman, and magician Dr. John D. 1527-1609, quote, had a famous mirror by which he claimed to contact all manner of angels and dead spirits. D. had a variety of magic mirrors and crystals. A particular favorite was a flat obsidian stone that is on display at the British Museum. His scribe, Edward Kelly, did all his feats upon the devil's looking-glass, a stone. Zachary Gray commented on this verse, quote, This Kelly was chief seer to Dr. D, and bred an apothecary, and was a good proficient in chemistry, and pretended to have the grand elixir, or philosopher's stone. He pretended to see apparitions in a crystal or barrel looking-glass, a round stone like a crystal. Gray, 1806. The Sloan Manuscript, 3846, copy of Seferatiel, has been noted for its composition in handwriting similar to that of Dr. D's scryer, Edward Kelly. Karen Skinner, 2013. In D's own accounts of his invocations or actions, as he referred to them, there are a number of references to smoke, indicating the possibility of some sort of fumigation, as well as references to the use of potions and ointments. These actions are the records of visions and angels and other spirits and the message delivered by them as seen and heard by the scryers, often Edward Kelly, with the aid of a crystal ball and then immediately related to Dee, who though present saw and heard nothing. Whitby, 2012. In Dee's record of these actions, we read how smoke filled the place, and an invoked entity states, quote, I smell the smoke, proceed, sir, in your purpose. And these could indicate suffumigation. 
Other references indicate some sort of elixir in use that clearly put a person into a drowsy state. Quote, taste of this potion, yea, the savor one only, of the vessel worketh most extremely against the maimed drowsiness of ignorance. If the hand be heavy, how weight and ponderous shall the whole world be? What will ye? D. Peterson, 2003. In one account of John D.'s actions of spirits, there is a lament about the lack of drugs for the operation and the use of ointments in their place. 1581 to 1583. Quote, I have forgotten all my drugs behind me, but since I know that some of you are well stored with sufficient ointments, I do intend to visit you only with their help. You see, all my boxes are empty. Dash E.K. Edward Kelly, he showeth a great bundle of empty potichery apothecary boxes. This brings a response from the figure invoked, quote, How cometh it that you pretend to come for a favorable divine power, and all your boxes are empty? Whitby 2012. The exchange over the lack of drugs also indicates that drugs were not an unusual part of these scrying sessions. As Kelly says, he forgot them, as if usually he had them. As Kelly had a reputation as a bit of a con man and swindler, one wonders whether the concern about lack of drugs was the spirits or Kelly's. In this regard, it should also be noted that the angels scried by Kelly also commanded that he and Dee share not only possessions in common, but also their wives. And these orders were apparently followed for at least one tryst. This is not to suggest that all of Dee's workings with Kelly were based purely on acts of fraud perpetuated by the latter on the former. It seems likely, quote, that Kelly both genuinely went into a trance-like state and consciously fabricated visions and revelations to maintain his credibility in the eyes of D. Whitby 2012. Even if we are to discount the actual invocation of angelic entities, along with the assumption of actual trickery, it is arguable that many of the visions may have arisen from Kelly's subconscious, perhaps after concentration in the crystal. He frequently saw nothing for the first 15 minutes, had induced in him some mild state of trance. Whitby 2012. The actions and effectiveness of drugs in this respect cannot be downplayed, nor the delay of time before the visions, or rather drugs, kicked in. A manuscript from Ashmole, Manuscript 204, Article 18, is a, quote, list of drugs probably written by D. French 2013. Unfortunately, this manuscript does not seem to have been reprinted elsewhere, and although a photograph reproduction of the actual MS is available online, I was unable to make sense of Dee's handwriting, so I could not consult its contents. Footnote. And the footnote leads to simply parentheses D slash Peterson 2003. Um, and it's an endnote. First of all, endnotes are infuriating to most academics or scholarly people. Secondly, they prove their uselessness when you insert an in-text citation such as here, and then it goes to the endnotes, and all it is is a parenthetical reference with a name and a date, which of course leads you to the bibliography of that name and that date to find out what book it's in. But if there's no page numbers in any of those places, the citation is 
barely useful, such as in this passage, we have the problem of the reference to a quote from about the missing of drugs being absent, but the only reference is Whitby 2012, which means you have to go to the bibliography and find Whitby. Whitby, Christopher, John Dee's Actions with Spirits, 22nd December 1581 to 23rd May 1583, Volume 1 and 2, 2012 1988. So the reprinted version the citation is from is the 2012 re-release, the original book release was either 1988 or the original version was 1988. Again, the bibliographic citation is not accurate there. And there's also no page numbers anywhere referenced to the actual citation of the quotation, which is a huge quotation. And we are still looking to find where that exact passage comes from. Uh, Stenwick um, and I and others are trying to find it. Um, This is a, a weakness I've noticed a lot in uh, independent scholarship people trained outside of universities tend to have a very great range of sources that they draw from. But, but the use of endnotes, uh, I found this a lot in Aaron Leach's grimoires, and, and just very commonly it's frustrating to every multiple times a page go to the end of a chapter at the end of the book, have to find the endnote, and then just realize it's something that could have been added in the text or at the bottom of the page or anywhere else. But to keep flipping back and forth, and gaining no real information out of it, or even moreover, an inability to find the actual source that all of that trouble has referenced, is frustrating. So for all you future scholars out there, never do that. Um, Use footnotes if you have to, and, well, footnotes are great and useful. And if it's just a page number, definitely put it as a footnote. Don't have someone jumping to three places in a book looking for a page number that isn't even there which in academia would actually disqualify your paper, like your entire thing would be thrown out because you can't have a quote without reference to where that quote's from because you could be making it up, and it's not my job to go do your research for you. But this is something we all want to find out. We really want to know where this is from, so if you can find it, that would be great. Uh, Let us know. And uh, in the meantime, let's continue to enjoy this nevertheless very exciting and broad-ranging initial study of 777 pages from my buddy's book, Liber 420. In the classic play The Alchemist by Ben Jonson, 1572-1637, a satire based in part on the personalities of John Dee and his scribe Edward Kelly, there are allusions to the use of drugs, and they do seem to be tied with the compounds and extracts of alchemists and apothecaries. As we saw in chapter 11, such preparations were in use by alchemists at this time, and available in apothecaries. Johnson's play describes a main character, Abel Drugger, shortened to drug, as one whose name is D. In a rug gown, there's D and rug, that's drug. This is evidently leveled at the celebrated Dr. John D., a great pretender to astrology, alchemy, and magic. Gifford, 1875. This character is also described in the play as being busy with his spirits, and his shop's alchemical magic will draw clients who will pay for drugs and potions that, like the elixir of life, hold the promise of restorative effects. For consumption by the ounce or the jarful. 
Julian and Ostovich, 2013. Other references in The Alchemist indicate the actual use of drugs. Drug money used to make your compound. Indian drug, a ship from Ormus, a place in Persia, containing a commodity of drugs. And lines like, this is true physic. This your sacred medicine. No talk of opiates to this great elixir. This will work some strange effect if he but feel it. And other references to elixirs. In regard to the references to elixirs in the play, there is also a clear alchemical association made. Your elixir, your lapis minerals, and your lunary. Your elixir, your lac virginis, your stone, your medicine, and your chrysosperm. Ashmol and Lily, who had access to Dee's works, agreed he certainly had the elixir. As truth often comes through jest, we may take these references as indications that the idea, at least, that Dee and Kelly, along with other alchemists and magicians, were using psychoactive substances in their magic was not uncommonly held, and allusions towards that were recognizable to a 17th century audience of a popular comedy. Although Johnson's work is a mockery of Dean Kelly, it is a fact that Kelly was well known for his knowledge of alchemy, and treatises he wrote on the subject have survived. As well, he had worked as an apothecary's apprentice prior to joining forces with D. Richard Deacon in John D., scientist, geographer, astrologer, and secret agent Elizabeth I., 1968, suggested Kelly was using cannabis and other substances in necromantic practices, but this was based on later 19th century authors writing after the fact. Quote, Alephis Levy, the 19th century historian of magic, Professor E. M. Butler, the author of Ritual Magic, and A. E. Waite, all took an interest in Kelly and their revelations on the techniques used at this time in questioning the dead hardly improved Kelly's reputation. The actual questioning had to be preceded by a blood sacrifice and a fast of 15 days with a, quote, single unsalted repast after sundown. The repast, of course, is the, um, the host from the Eucharist. The latter should consist of black bread and blood, or black beans and milky and narcotic herbs. So, it's a special repast. In addition, the questioner must get drunk every five days after sundown on wine, in which five heads of poppies and five ounces of pounded hemp seed had been strained for five hours, the infusion being strained through a cloth woven by a prostitute. Deacon, 1968. So, there's some (laughs) interesting, uh, yeah, version of... Kelly from this author. (laughs) As no earlier source than Levy can be found for this ritual and recipe, it is hard to suggest it as a basis for the work of Dean Kelly. These claims can unfortunately be placed alongside the unsubstantiated suggestions of hashish and opium use, along with the acquisition of the fabled Necronomicon put forth by the retired police department employee M. Keinholz. Keinholz seems to have taken the stories from the Necronomicon quite literally. I'm not sure if it's Keinholz or Keenhold, or we have both spellings here. In her book, Opium Traders and Their Worlds, she ties the controversial grimoire with D and his notorious scryer Edward Kelly in reference to the Necronomicon, or here written Necronimicon. She wrote that, quote, while in Prague in 1586, 
Dee and Kelly searched out and plagiarized a copy of the Necronymicon by Abdul al-Harazid of Yemen, who developed a kind of incense containing olibanum, storax, dictamus, opium, and hashish. Keinholz, 2008. Keinholz also claimed Dee was Queen Elizabeth's special agent and suggested that he was likely a candidate for advising, quote, the British to deal in opium. Unfortunately, Keinholz's claims don't seem to be particularly credible, as the vast majority of researchers consider both the Necronymicon and Abdul al-Hazred to be the creations of Lovecraftian lore. A clear reason that Dr. D. and Kelly would not have written openly about their use of drugs in invocation is that both suffered persecution throughout their lives for their activities. I'm not sure if that makes sense, that that's why they would be quiet about drugs, but who knows, stranger things. Because of this, they had to be very secretive. For example, the accounts from their crystal scrying cited earlier in reference to fumigations, ointments, and potions were in fact carefully hidden and were not discovered till decades after Dee had passed away by a couple who had acquired an old chest that had at one time been owned by Dee. Apparently, a secret panel popped open one day and revealed the accounts that were hidden inside. That's actually a very fascinating true story about how we discovered the missing parts of the Enochian system. Quote, After Dee's death, his papers were passed to Freemason Elias Ashmole, and Ashmole spent a good deal of time and effort researching the difficult texts. He was fascinated by Dee and Kelly's work and tried to commune with the angels during a succession of seances from 1671 to 1676, Harrison, 2017. Ashmole, as noted, was familiar with both the Picatrix and Sepharatia Liber Salomonis as well. We can also be sure that Ashmole would have had access to cannabis, opium, and other rare drugs prescribed in such works. Through his close association with friendship with Dr. Robert Hooke, who lectured on the subject and who shared Ashmole's keen interest in the works of Dr. D. Although at times a celebrated magician at Queen Elizabeth's court, at others D. felt a very real threat due to rumors and accusations of witchcraft. And D. also never had any actual financial support or official position, really. I believe he was just more there, and they put up with him. That seems to be what the scholarship consensus is, but there's different points of view on that for sure. In 1583, a mob, believing Dee's familiar was the devil, ransacked his home and library, and some rare manuscripts were lost as a result. One wonders if copies of the Picatrix or the Sefer Ratziel, with its cannabis recipe for seeing devils and spirits in mirrors, or similar such manuscripts like the Book of Magic, Book of Oberon, that we now know were in circulation in that place and time, were destroyed in this house invasion. As Teresa Burns has noted of the same period, in regard to the secrecy needed in owning or copying the Book of Magic, B-O-O, Book of Oberon, the year 1583 is a sort of cutoff point for much tolerance of non-state-supported magical activity in England. Works like Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, published in 1584, the year John Dee and Edward Kelly left for Poland, England, and the year an arch-puritan John Whitgift became Archbishop of Canterbury and Chief 
censor of printed texts, managed to attack highbrow hermeticism like Dee's and the charismatic religions more popular among the poor at exactly the same time. Perhaps the most famous early 16th century grimoire, Cornelius Agrippa's De Occulta Philosophia, was not really considered objectionable reading early in Elizabeth's reign, and thus one can find a record of it in places like Dee's library, as well as several contemporaneous libraries at Oxford and Cambridge. But by the 1580s, while one might already own old compilations like that of Agrippa's, one might not want to write anything new, or at least not write it, and have anyone else know about it. Had someone compiled and tried to print the same material after 1584, at the very least the work would have not received ecclesiastical approval, unless it is worded like Scott's discovery of witchcraft as an attack, particularly an attack on Catholics. Because of this political climate, it's no wonder that we don't know what happened to the Book of Magic from 1583 until someone copied part of it in the 17th century. It was not a very safe manuscript to have. Burns, 2014. In 1587, due to rumors of necromancy, Dee and Kelly had to defend themselves in front of the Catholic Church. The papal nuncio and Jesuits at Prague wanted Dee and Kelly to confess that they were dealing with evil spirits. Whitby, 2012. Dee defended himself adequately while Kelly angered them with chiding remarks about the behavior of many priests of the day. <laughs> causing one of his accusers to say later he considered tossing him out the window to his death, which was apparently not that uncommon in Prague in those days. Good times. Dee lamented how people saw him as a companion of the hellhounds and a caller and conjurer of wicked damned spirits. D. 1590. These sorts of accusations have followed both Dee and Kelly into the modern day, and on the flip side, the Enochian language developed by Kelly through the angels he saw within the crystal ball still figures with practitioners of ceremonial magic. Considering texts like the Seferatiel, Libra Salomonis, and the Book of Magic, etc., a.k.a. the Book of Oberon, explicitly refer to the use of cannabis and magic mirrors for the purpose of seeing devils and spirits, the following references seem to indicate there was some awareness of these combinations amongst the authorities. Michael Dalton certainly seems to be referring to the ceremonial magician rather than the country witch in his following condemnation against conjurers who believe by certain terrible words that they can raise the devil and make him to tremble. And by impaling themselves in a circle which, as one saith, cannot keep out a mouse, they believe that they are therein ensconced and safe from the devil whom they are about to raise, and having raised the devil, they seem by prayers and invocations of God's powerful names to compel the devil to say or do what the conjurer commandeth him. Dalton, 1618. Possibly influenced from accounts of D. and Kelly, Dalton in the country justice, 1618, which became a sort of textbook for identifying witches and magicians, condemned the sorcerer who work and perform things seemingly at the least by powerful superstitions and ceremonial forms of words called charms by them pronounced or by medicines, herbs, or other things applied above the course of nature 
and by the devil's help and covenants made with them, as well as the soothsayers, or wizards, which divine and foretell things to come, and do the answer to the devil, or by his help. They do either answer by voice, or else do set before their eyes in glasses crystal stones. So Dee and Kelly would have had plenty of reasons to keep secret about the means, methods, and sources of instruction in regards to their scrying, as would other magicians. Both Dee and Kelly have been connected with the mysterious Voynich manuscript, which has an image which is strikingly similar to earlier depictions of cannabis. The vellum on which the Voynich manuscript is composed has been carbon dated to the early 15th century, 1404 to 1438. However, the text itself may have come some time later. Its origins are unknown. In the complete remastered Voynich manuscript, Dr. J. Winter notes, Roger Bacon has been suggested as a possible author, but also that D. himself may have written it and spread the rumor that it was originally a work of Bacon's in the hopes of later selling it. <laughs> Winter 2016. Adding to this, several people have suggested that just as Kelly invented Enochian to dupe D, he could have fabricated the Voynich manuscript to swindle the emperor, Rudolf, who was already paying Kelly for his supposed alchemical expertise. Interest in magic mirrors may have infiltrated into the famous Renaissance schools of the occult, the invisible college more popularly known as the Rosicrucians. Quote, the association of magical mirrors with Rosicrucianism goes at least as far back as the publication of the first Rosicrucian Manifesto, Frama Fraternitatis, in the early 17th century, wherein is described a vault having seven sides or walls, and each wall being a door that opens to a chest in which contained, among other things, looking-glasses of diverse virtues. That's Newman 2011, P.D. Newman, I guess. In his comments on Sefer Ratziel Liber Salomonis, Skinner notes that the influential alchemist Andreas Libavius, 1555-1516, speculated that one of the Sefer Ratziel's was the founding document for the Rosicrucian cosmology of angelic spheres. It is therefore likely that a copy of one of the Sefer Ratziel's passed through his hands. Over a century later, the mystic Emanuel Swedenborg, 1688-1772, was also purported to have been influenced by Sefer Ratziel in his opinion about angels. Karin Skinner, 2013. Interestingly, the later 19th century spiritualist, L.A. Carinet, who traveled in Rosicrucian circles and who used topical and ingested cannabis preparations with magic mirrors, dedicated an influential book on hashish-based spiritualism to Swedenborg. Moreover, Cahagne claimed that when contacted in the 1840s seance, Swedenborg had endorsed the use of hashish to induce trance for contacting the dead. In relation, Samuel Butler's 1613-1618 famous comedic poem, um, Hudibras, does seem to insinuate that the use of fumigants and psychoactive substances, along with crystal balls, planetary magic, and invocations, were part of Rosicrucian magic. The poem is, The Rosicrucian weighs more sure 
to bring the devil to the lure. Each of them has a several gin to catch intelligences in. Some by the nose with fumes trepanum, as Dunstan did the devil's granum. Others with characters and words catch em as men in nets do birds, and some with symbols, signs, and tricks engraved in planetary nicks. With their own influences will fetch em down from their orbs, arrest and catch em, make em depose and answer to all questions ere they let them go. Butler, 1678. A reference from Butler to the sorts of quintessences and arcana discussed in chapter 11 should also be noted, quote, each of them has a several gin to catch intelligences in. The next verse in Butler's parodic poem referred to the devil bird in the pommel of Paracelsus's sword that Naude and others identified as opium and Kelly's devil's looking glass. It would seem the orbs referred to were likely the classic crystal balls used in the same way as magic mirrors to entrap spirits for questioning. These lines attributes to the Rosicrucians several means of calling down the spirit world and immediately following he associates with the Brotherhood, a representative group of magicians who by this time had come to be associated with occultism in a general sense. These include Paracelsus, who was not a Rosicrucian, Kelly and Agrippa, each of whom, according to Hudibras, has his own means of demonic conjuration, Linden 2015. As well, we see a reference to fumigation for invocation in Butler's reference to the Rosicrucian use of fumes and trepanum. John Hayden's The Harmony of the World, 1662, contains references to Rosicrucian topical entheogenic preparations in a chapter, quote, The Art of Preparing Rosicrucian Medicines to Cure All Diseases, that describes how the soul separates from the body and is not stopped in the dead corpse as some would have it, how the soul may be loosened and leave the body and yet return to it again by ointments. The soul's departed communicates dreams. Interestingly, Hayden shows a keen familiarity with the magic of Sepharatia Liber Salomonis on page 41 in his preface, so we can be sure he was familiar with the role of cannabis and other psychoactive substances in the preparation of such ointments. Hayden married the widow of the herbalist and astrologer Nicholas Culpepper, and as noted earlier, Culpepper's herbal lists cannabis as a plant of Saturn. This planetary dominion is also given in William Lilly's Christian Astrology, 1647, which includes known hallucinogens such as wolfsbane, hellebore, the white and black henbane, mandrake, poppy, nightshade, and other plants. It seems likely that Hayden, as well as, uh, was aware of such associations. Quote, it is the urine of Saturn, and with it I do water my plants of the sun and plants of the moon, which by it are animated with vegetable blessed divine fire, if you can obtain the knowledge of it. For it is to be found everywhere. You will have a wonderful medicine that will alter, change, and amend the state of your body. It prolongs life, preserve health, it maketh old men young, wife and virtuous, etc., Hayden, 1652. Interestingly, the use of cannabis for magical purposes, particularly div mirror divination, as referred to in the Sepharatiel, was still very popular among occultists of the 19th century. 
Quote, a long book might be written about 19th century crystallomancy. Crystal workings clearly played a great part in their researches, providing them with a gateway to another world, in whatever sense, whether directly or through the use of a medium. In France, hashish was often used. When used with rituals and with intention of commuting, Yes, it actually says commuting with angels. Scrying formed a branch of ceremonial magic in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It stimulated the scientific imagination at a time when some natural philosophers were not quite ready to exclude incomprehensible phenomena from consideration. Lastly, to some experimenters, it seemed to offer a channel of communication with the dead, hence a promise of their own survival. Godwin, 1994. As P.D. Newman, who has written extensively about potential references to psychoactive substances in the occult, as well as magic mirrors, has noted, quote, amidst the second half of the 19th century, during a time that has come to be known as the occult revival, the curious practice of spirit communication was spreading like ectoplasm. From seances and psychic changelings to magic mirrors and table toppings, Spiritualism and communication with the dead became all the rage on both sides of the pond, greatly influencing the minds of those who would contribute largely to the esoteric literature of the era. One of the primary modes of spirit communication that was widely practiced at the time was crystal or mirror gazing, known also as catoptromancy or scrying. This was accomplished with the use of prayers, invocations, and the burning of psychotropic incense, and consumption of a number of narcotic, hypnagogic, and entheogenic plants and substances. These include, but are not limited to, cannabis, opium, nitrous oxide, and even psychedelic fungi. It is believed by practitioners of the art that the spirits of all manner of deceased and discarnate figures may be called into the crystal mirror thereafter petitioned for the knowledge and favors, etc., that the querent requires or desires. Some of the key players during this period include visionary Rosicrucian Pascal Beverly Randolph, psychic spiritualist Emma Hardings, Britain, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky of the Theosophical Society, and especially Freemasons Frederick Hockley and his students F.G. and Herbert Irwin, the last of whom having actually died of a laudanum overdose following a session with a crystal ball. And that's from P.D. Newman, 2011. Blavatsky's use of hashish will be discussed later, and well aware of the use of magic mirrors from her days as a spiritualist, she referred to them as a most interesting field of conscious clairvoyance. Blavatsky, 1883. Quote, Frederick Hockley, 1809-1885, was a highly influential British occultist who divided his time between transcribing magical manuscripts and practicing crystallomancy, as he called it, which is described by him as the art of invocating by magic crystals or mirrors. Newman, 2011. Hockley, who was a Freemason Grand Steward and a member of the Royal Arch, in his youth had been a pupil of Francis Barrett, author of the celebrated grimoire, The Magus, and himself the author of Invocating by Magic, Crystals or Mirrors, 1869, republished 2010. Hockley had been using magic mirrors since he was a teenager and likely learned about them as well as the occult use of drugs from Barrett. 
who warned against their use while at the same time showing his experience and awareness of them. There are some perfumes or suffumigations and unctions which make men speak in their sleep, walk, and do those things that are done by men that are awake, and often what, when awake, they cannot do or dare do. Others, again, make men hear horrid or delightful sounds, noises, and the like. And in some measure, this is the cause why mad and melancholy men believe they hear and see things equally false and improbable, falling into the most gross and pitiful delusions, fearing where no fear is, and angry where there is none to contend. Such passions as these we can induce by magical vapors, confections, perfumes, collieries, unguents, potions, poisons, lamps, light, etc. Likewise, by mirrors, images, enchantments, charms, sounds, and music, also by diverse rites, observations, ceremonies, religions, etc. Bear 1801. Hockley prepared a crystal with a spirit attached for the famous Sir Richard Burton, as well as a black mirror which he used in the same manner as you would a crystal, and he claimed to have communicated with Burton through it. Hockley, 1871. Burton had considerable knowledge of drugs like hashish, peyote, opium, amanita muscaria, mushrooms, as well as the tantric-like methods of magical eroticism. As Jocelyn Godwin clarifies of Hockley's statement, the attaching of a spirit to a crystal was the ritual referred to by Barrett as consecrating. Crystals were dedicated to different types of spirits, usually classified after the seven planetary angels. Godwin, 1994. I had lunch with him once. In his introduction to the recent publication, Experimentum, Potens Magna in Occult Philosophy, compiled and scribed by Frederick Hockley, Dan Harms wonders if the references to the ritual use of cannabis and opium in Experimentum signal tools that Hockley used. Harms, 2012. We know that Hockley had access from an early date and later owned large parts of a manuscript copy of the 16th century, The Book of Magic, which he referred to as a folio manuscript of magic and necromancy written by John Porter, 1583. From a young age, Hockley knew and worked for John Denley, 1764-1842, at Denley's famous occult bookstore that was frequented by the likes of Barrett, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and Lord Bulwer-Lytton, as well as members of the Mercury, a secret magical society whose members included several apparent owners of parts of VB-26, the Book of Magic, Book of Oberon, Robert Cross Smith, Raphael, John Palmer, Zadkiel, until the death of Smith where he, when he became Raphael, and George Graham, celebrated miniaturist painter Richard Cross Cosway, 1742-1821, the earliest known owner of VB-26, the Book of Magic, was also likely a member of the Mercury, Burns 2014. An 1841 edition of the Familiar Astrologer by Mercury member Raphael included a full account of Eckhartshausen's 18th century experiments with psychoactive fumigants, chapter 20 and also a legendary charm used by witches for magical purposes, taken from an old Blasset letter missal, 
in the possession of the Mercury, which also states that the muttering of this charm while concocting drugs or simples, balsams or elixirs, contributes marvelously to their efficacy. Raphael, 1841. Hail to thee, holy herb, growing on the ground all on Mount Calvary, first wast thou found. Thou art good for many sores, and healeth many wound. In the name of Saint Jesu, I take thee from the ground. Among Hockley's duties at Denley's bookstore was hand-copying and illustrating from old magical manuscripts. Harm's recent publication of Experimentum likely represents such a work, and Hockley did a masterful job of illustrating and transcribing such works. Amongst experts from other Renaissance sources, Experimentum specifically repeats the cannabis-scrying formula from the Book of Magic, which itself was borrowed from Seferaziel. Quote, Anoint thyself with juice of cannabis and archangel, and before a mirror of steel call spirits, and thou shalt see them, and have power to bind and to loose them. Hockley Harms 2012. As a devotee of the magic mirror, we can be sure the technique described stood out in Hockley's mind, as it did to the various patrons of Denley's occult shop, where it was circulated, and the original manuscript was treasured. It should also be noted that in regard to his own practice of scrying, quote, Hockley was immersed in the work of John Dee and Edward Kelly, collected Enochian material, and had spent hours and hours conjuring spirits. Burns 2014. This influence may have left its mark on later 19th century magic and into the present day, as the original Golden Dawn's Enochian materials most likely came from Frederick Hockley. In 1886, Hockley released The Offices and Order of Spirits, The Occult Virtues of Plants and Some Rare Magical Charms and Spells, which is basically his transliteration of the first half of the Book of Magic. The offices and order of spirits included the cannabis mirror scrying recipe as well as directions for fumigating opium. Apium, opium, hath great power upon winds and devils and fantasies, Hockley, 1886. In this respect, it should be noted that Herbert Irwin, who was one of the teenage scryers Hockley was known to have used, as they thought virginity was an important factor in psychic powers, is known to have come to his demise from an opium overdose taken during a scrying session. This may have led to more caution from Hockley in discussing this aspect of his technique, and thus the reason so little has been written about this in reference to him. Irwin's own book, published posthumously, also titled The Book of Magic, 2014, has large sections on magic mirrors, and as the publishers note, it also discusses the magical uses of opium itself, about which he is ambiguous, considering it potentially demonic. Nevertheless, he took opium to assist his scrying and died of an opium overdose. Emma Harding Britton, also referred to by Newman, who was well known for mirror scrying, wrote that in order to profit by my mirror, I would advise the ceremony to be performed with a certain dignity and to have recourse only to what may act on the imagination or nerves, as much by a normal or spiritual magnetism as by the assistance of perfumes. 
All those that bear or shed a sweet, pleasant smell are suitable for the good spirits, such as incense, musk, gumlack, etc., and for evil spirits the seeds of henbane, hemp, belladonna, anise, or coriander, etc. Each seeks his own atmosphere or one akin to it. Britain, 1876. Elsewhere she referred to a variety of other substances to induce the trance state. The soma juice, hashish, opium, and napolis, and distillations procured from two or three species of acrid fungi, are considered the most effective narcotics appropriate for inducing the trance condition. Britain, 1876. And another quote from that. It is well known that the Asiatics and Orientals of the present day, together with a larger number of Europeans than is generally supposed, resort to the use of hashish, opium, soma drink, and other pernicious narcotics as temporary stimulants or to induce ecstasy and the trance condition. The medieval mystics and even the poor ignorant being... Accused of witchcraft, resorted still more frequently to unguents and fumigations. The latter were invariably used in all magical rites, they being deemed efficacious in gratifying the spirits summoned, also in preparing the atmosphere for the demonstrations, no less than in exerting an influence upon the invocants by stupefying or stimulating the senses. Britain also describes a scene in Alexandria where a magician puts a boy into a trance by burning much incense and uttering many unintelligible formulas, so the child could see a vision in a pool of ink, which was commonly used in replacement of mirrors and crystals, although no indication as to what was in the incense is given directly. Although Britain seems to downplay the combination of psychoactive substances and magic mirrors, her comments make it clear that such use was taking place in Europe and America at the time. One particularly interesting advocate of this method was the noted French occultist Louis-Alphonse Cahagné. Cahagné's methods of inducing trance in his subjects included both magic mirrors and the use of drugs, especially hashish, as aids to clairvoyance. Devaney, 1997. Cahagné recommended the use of hashish and opium to intensify the visions in the mirrors. Decker and Dumont, 2002. Moreover, Cahagné not only used cannabis and other substances to induce trance for mirror scrying, he would also infuse the mirrors themselves with cannabis and a variety of narcotic compounds. In relation to the topical cannabis preparation referred to in the Seferatiel, Cahagné wrote of a pomade, or ungent, for provoking ecstatic trance, which he described in detail. Take flowers of hemp, flowers of red poppy, or the wild poppy, then five grams of hashish in a hecklo of lard, to be well covered for two hours over a fire in a vessel of boiling water. Use the said flowers in equal parts, as much as the vessel will hold. Keep the whole properly and use as needed. See how this pomade is employed. The evening before going to bed, rub it behind the ears, descend along the neck to the carotid arteries, then use it under the armpits and in the region of the grand sympathetic sick. That's a noted typo in the text, the source text, which passes under the left breast, then rub in the same 
manner, the loins, the soles of the feet, the thick parts of the arms and the chest. I do not recommend that it should be rubbed over the solar plexus or the pit of the stomach. After this unction, sleep, well penetrated with the subject which you desire to understand, according to the nervous impressionability, will be the order of sleep. This pomade is very calming for the gout and rheumatism. After the hands have been used in this friction, they should be washed in the acidulated water of good vinegar and camphorated alcohol. Sick. Cahagne, 1858-1898. The addition of poppy to the topical preparation would likely have increased the effects in comparison with the ointment described in Seferaziel. Cahagne not only used topical preparations, but also referred to a somnambulic liquor, which he felt he had proven to have similar, if not even more powerful, trance-inducing properties. Quote, At the end of July, when the hemp is in flower, which is easily known if the powder is scattered by a light stroke of the stalk, which powder is the pollen of the plant, lop the top in a such a manner as to collect the most possible of these flowers and the powder, without any mixture of the leaves of the plant. Let it dry some days in the shade, well spread out upon a sheet of white paper. Then place the moiety of it in a jug filled with good brandy, and expose it for forty-five hours to the action of the sun, the jug being well covered at the mouth." Draw out and press the liquid free of the grounds, and keep it to serve thy needs. One to three spoonfuls of coffee with a half glass of good wine are sufficient to aid the intuition, and free the spiritual sight of the magnetic somnambule from the material clouds which hinder him. If thou puts the same quantity in an infusion of the lime tree in tea or coffee, take this mixture very warm and sugared before going to bed, and the visions will be very lucid. Thou canst use this mixture as it pleases thee in coffee, in stimulants, or in soothing drinks. If thy temperament is warm and excitable, use it very moderately. On the contrary, this beverage being a dissolvent of the glare, sick, thou wilt find it good. Do not expect marked phenomena by its use, but hope for success with an increase of intuition, just combinations, sound judgment in fine, a comprehension otherwise extended of that which is presented to thee. Cahagne, 1858. Mirrors infused with cannabis and other substances were dubbed mirror narcotique, narcotic mirrors, by Cahagne. He described them as a globes in a crystal but full of water distilled from narcotic plants. In preparing the infusion to be placed in these globes, Cahagne relayed that he would take a strong pinch of the following substances. Belladonna, henbane, madragora, and flowers of hemp, then a head of bruised poppy, and three grams of opium, macerated for forty-eight hours in a glass retort. Of the capacity of two liters circumference, a full moiety, majority of course, of good red wine, after which put all to heat upon a sand bath to distill. A very clear water is thus obtained, which with which fill the globes to serve for these experiments. Care should be taken that this water is not swallowed, for without being mortal it would give much trouble. Operate in the same manner that these as the other mirrors.
He also gives us some idea as to what effect might be gained from some of these substances. The poppy invites to meditation, the henbane to disputes, the hemp to the sciences, opium to acts of venery, the belladonna to estimation. Cahagnier cited the Baron du Potet, 1796-1881, the eminent mesmerier, who also referred to the use of hashish to induce trance states for his belief that spirits of the dead could be called into magic mirrors or crystals in similar fashion to that described in Seferaziel. We can sometimes enchain the spirit that we have evoked in the crystal and hold it there. It is that which excites the vision and which as a messenger goes to those beings dead or alive that you demand and constrain to appear. Dupoté. Dupoté, in his turn, referred to Cahagné's use of hashish to contact the dead in his Journal of Magnetism, as well as the use of ointments and hashish for divinatory and out-of-body experiences. In regard to magnetism and occult matters, Dupoté's most important discoveries concerned the operations of the magic mirror, Devenet, 1997. The famous 19th-century French magician, Alephis Lévy, explained of Dupoté's work with mirrors, quote, Baron Dupoté is an exceptional and highly intuitive nature. He establishes triumphantly the existence of that universal light wherein lucidities perceive all images and all reflections of thoughts. He assists the vital projection of this light by means of an absorbent apparatus which he calls the magic mirror, a circle or square covered with powerful charcoal, finely sifted. In this negative space, the combined light projected by the magnetic subject and operateur soon tinges and realizes the forms corresponding to their nervous impressions. The somnambulist sees manifested therein all the dreams of opium and hashish, and if he were not extracted from the spectacle, convulsions would follow. The phenomena are analogous to those hydromancy as practiced by Cagliostro, the process of staring at water dazzles and troubles the sight. The fatigue of the eye in its turn favors hallucinations of the brain. Cagliostro sought to secure for his experiments virgin subjects in a state of perfect innocence so as to set aside interference due to nervous divagations occasioned by erotic reminiscences. Dupoté's magic mirror is perhaps more fatiguing for the nervous system as a whole, but the dazzlements of hydromancy would have a more dangerous effect upon the brain. Levy, 1927. As red as though he were a Quebecois Frenchman. Oui. Ah, le, le, le. <laughs> Cahagné, who was clearly one of the foremost proponents of this technique, felt certain through these methods, necromancy will be no longer a science mystic and hidden, but a study preparatory and necessary to the religious instruction and morality of all men. Cagne, 1858. Yeah, I think he was wrong about the idea that necromancy would one day become uh, uh, necessary to the morality of all men. <laughs> 
Cahagné introduced many people to this technique of cannabis and drug-infused mirror scrying. Among those influenced by him was the African-American Rosicrucian Pascal Beverly Randolph. Quote, Randolph had a reputation by the early 1850s as a typical trance speaker. He would act as the unconscious medium for various reform-minded spirits. In 1855, he traveled to Europe and mixed with in the mesmerist circles in France around Baron Jules de Porté and Louis-Alphonse Cahigny. Unlike most American spiritualists, the French mesmerists were well-versed in the Western magical and occult traditions. Also, and most especially, they used in their evocations magic mirrors or crystals and drugs, especially hashish. All this was a revelation to Randolph. That's from Godwin, Chanel, and Duvernay, 1995. It was here that the American spiritualist picked up so many occult techniques, which he would later bring back to America, and the most notable of these was the use of hashish and magic mirrors. Randolph went on to write an influential treatise of the use of hashish as an aid to trance possession, which he released as a pamphlet and included in one of his early and elaborately titled books, Clairvoyance, How to Produce It and Perfect It, with an essay on hashish, its benefits and its dangers, 1860. As well as an important book on clairvoyant scrying with magic mirrors, How to Make the Magic Glass, Gold Mirror of the Dead, by means of which Oriental Magi are said to have smart-held commas with spirits, 1860. That's a crazy title for a book, eh? It's called, this book title is, imagine if someone's like, what's your book called? Uh, The new book you just put out. You're like, oh, it's not out till next year, 1860, but it's called... How to Make the Magic Glass, Gold Mirror of the Dead, by the means of which Oriental Magi are said to have smart-held commerce with spirits. Yeah, it's coming out with Penguin, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Copies of these failed to survive into modern times. (laughs) However, copies of Randolph's The Unveiling, or What I Think of Spiritualism, 1860, from the same period, did survive, and this was appended with his world-famous medicinal formulas. These preparations were often made with the very best oriental hemp, upon whose genuineness my correspondents may place implicit reliance, and touted the efficacy of the herb for both a variety of ailments which he offered for sale, and also noted that a preparation of hashish containing dawam mask, medicine of immortality, as providing the serenest and most beatific vision Randolph had ever experienced." A later version of Randolph's 1860 paper on hashish, as well as a lot of mirror lore, made it into the Guide to Clairvoyance, a practical manual for those who aim to perfect clear-seeing and psychometry, 1867, as well as a more on the magic mirror in Seership, the magnetic mirror, 1875, His dealing with the dead, the human soul, its migrations and transmutations, 1861, also makes reference to hashish and mirrors and was very influential in American spiritualist circles of the 19th century. Robert North gives Randolph's potent recipe for a stimulant powder that was used expressly for mirror scrying in Sexual Magic, 1988, as well as instructions for building the mirrors. Quote, this powder is dangerous for many men. It must be used with prudence and as infrequently as possible. When the stimulant powder has made its effect, it is necessary to continue the work without it. 
the stimulant powder. The stimulant powder that we use for our magical experiences is not new. One finds it in many recipes of the Middle Ages. The sorcerers of that era used it for traveling to the festivals of the Sabbath, among other things. Accordingly, we have made some modifications for the following reasons. The stimulant powder was prepared in the Middle Ages by the maceration of plants in human fat. This bizarre procedure was motivated by the knowledge that various substances will more effectively penetrate the pores of the operator if the conductor that is on his skin is identical that with that which is found under the skin. Good results can be obtained, however, with the fat extracted from the sweat of the experimenter. But in the face of the numerous difficulties of this preparation, we have replaced human fat with animal fat. First of all, we leave it heavy cooking salt and then we have wash we wash it in cold running water we repeat this process and bathe five times and then we plunge the fat into a hot bath this bath must last for six hours following <laughs> to the fat thus previously treated we then add a, for 100 grams of fat 40 grams of hashish 50 grams of henbane 80 grams of palm de epi 20 grams of belladonna, 260 grams of hemp, 50 grams of garlic, 30 grams of sunflower seeds, 60 grams of calamus, 250 grams of poppy flowers, and 100 grams of flakes of wheat. So not only will it get you stoned, but it's bad for celiacs. <laughs> when the mixture is completely dry, we filter it in a manner to obtain a very fine powder, which we conserve in a well-sealed vase. We use this stimulant powder thus prepared one or two minutes before the experience. We rub some of this powder on the solar plexus, the hollow of the throat, the armpits and behind the knees, the soles of the feet and the palms of the hands. When the magical operation is terminated, we wash ourselves immediately with hot water and rub ourselves with some essence of alum or Vaseline. The wheat flakes would serve us by turning the ointment into a powder, giving us Randall stimulant powder, and allowing for a more even distribution of the potent ingredients. After an exhaustive study, Professor Jocelyn Godwin concluded that Randolph's references to an elixir of life identified a hashish preparation, while the philosopher's stone was the magic mirror. Godwin, 1994. In Seership, the magnetic mirror... Randolph explained in his 19th century dramatic fashion, quote, The plane of the mirror is before us within so few feet or inches, but its lanes lead down the ages, and its roads up the starry steeps of the infinite. Its field is the vastness below, above and around and elsewhere, but the elsewhere contains all life next off life, is an immortal fastness. Randolph, 1875. Like Cagnet's narcotic mirrors, Randolph had recipes that included potent narcotics for a varnish on a magic mirror and for liquid condensers, which were also applied between layers of glass. Besides the use of drugs for mirror scrying, Randolph advised a six-month course of preparatory mental visual exercises for the practice that involved reverse imaging i.e. staring at a simple black dot for a minute and then looking at a blank surface. There is the optical illusion of a reversed image of the black dot. As Randolph instructed, quote, One hangs a white disc on a wall which is black at the center. 
One stares at the black center of the disc for 60 seconds, remaining perfectly motionless. This fortifies the capacity for concentration in the student and also his attention. When the prescribed minute elapses, one turns the face without changing the position of the eyes towards a white surface, on which the optical illusion we see is the same disc, but the colors are reversed. The background is black and the center being white. It's how tatwa scrying largely works. After practice and managing to mentally hold the reversed image for an extended amount of time, the student was instructed to then proceed in this manner, using, instead of black and white, each of the primary colors of the rainbow. After a half year or so of this practice, quote, the willed effect is thus obtained more easily and quickly. A figure appears suddenly on the polished surface of the mirror, and you may question this figure you see. Randolph, 1988. Randolph placed extreme importance on this method of divination, believing that the spiritualism of our ancestors was thoroughly acquainted with the secrets of the magic mirror. Quote, the Urim and Thummim, and all sorts of polished surfaces were used for religious visions, for the warnings and recommendations demanded by the gods. Zoroaster scried before the magic mirror. After him, Socrates, Plotinus, Porphyry, Iamblichus, Cardan praised their virtues, and later still Robert Flood and the great mage clairvoyant Paracelsus, Randolph, 1988. That must be the reprint date. Randolph saw himself and his own use of magic mirrors as part of this lasting tradition. After traveling in Europe, he came to identify himself as part of the Mystic Brotherhood of Rosicrucians, and this association likely came through contacts he had made there. Quote, from the early 1860s on, he was the Rosicrucian, associated with the popular mind with crystal gazing, drugs, especially hashish, and secret oriental brotherhoods. Devenet, 1997. Randolph's influence on this in this area seems to have been considerable. The Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, another secret order which drew heavily on the works of Randolph, utilized cannabis in their initiations, providing it mail order for members, as well as providing tractats like Instructions for Neophytes in Use of Mirrors and Laws of Magic Mirrors. Godwin Chanel, Devenet, 1995. Other important 19th century Rosicrucian figures have been tied to the use of cannabis, and P.D. Newman refers to a number of 19th and early 20th century Rosicrucians that practiced mirror-gazing. Newman cites a paper on the order and the stages of occult progress delivered to the Societas Rosicruciana by Freemason John Yarker, 1833-1913, that included references on the use of of the crystal stone or magic mirror. Yarker likely gleaned much from the works of P.B. Randolph, as he recorded that he had paid his widow four pounds for a collection of Randolph's writings. It is likely that the use of cannabis was amongst the techniques Yarker adopted from Randolph, as he wrote about his own experiences on the drug to Francis Irwin. Quote, it put me into a peculiar dreaming state, and I felt myself at one with the infinite mind, and whatever subject I thought of passed from the particular to the general. If the thought upon the relation existing between man and woman, I beheld myself a portion of the masculine energy of nature. 
The ties of Irwin's colleague, Frederick Hockley, referred to earlier in reference to his writings on magic, mirrors, and cannabis to the Rosicrucians, went unquestioned to such an extent that he was generally he was admitted to the grade of Adeptus Exemptus in the SRIA, Societis Rosicruciana in Anglia, without Hockley's ever having been attending a meeting. Newman, 2011. This later Rosicrucian interest in mirrors was likely carried on from the Renaissance use of such apparatus by Rosicrucians suggested earlier, as was the utilization of drugs to increase their effectiveness. The German doctor Franz Hartmann wrote a number of books on the Rosicrucians, as well as claiming to have studied under the secret order, and if not an actual member, he was well affiliated with those that were. Besides working and traveling with H.P. Blavatsky, he was considered instrumental in the founding of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which also drew deeply on Randolph's writing, and was given the title of Honorary Grand Master of the Sovereign Sanctuary. Hartman referred to the use of cannabis and other substances to induce trance as well as magic mirrors for the purpose. Quote, Various means have been adopted to suspend the discriminating powers of reason and render the imagination abnormally passive, and all such practice are injurious in proportion as they are efficacious. The ancient Pythoness attempted to heighten her already abnormal receptivity by the inhalation of noxious vapors. Others use opium, Indian, hemp, and other narcotics, which to render their mind blank and induce morbid fancies and illusions. Others stare at magic mirrors or crystals, water or ink. Hartman, 1893. And now, a word from our sponsors. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Charles Lanson's 1907 book, Le Delà et Sa Probleme, The Hereafter and Its Problems, describes a recipe for infused narcotic mirrors that contained cannabis, similar to Cagnes, and also reminiscent of the jam e jam, the cup of jamshid, which contained the sacred elixir but was also gazed into for scrying. Quote, Some countryside sorcerers use a bucket of water, or better, a copper cauldron in which we pour water after having well clean polish the inside to make it shiny. The narcotic mirrors are of similar kind, but with this difference that the pure water is replaced by the product from the distillation of a liter of red wine in which we steep, macerate for 48 hours, a pinch of belladonna, of henbane, of madragora, and hemp flour, a crushed poppy head, and three grams of opium. 
for the lunar mirrors, consisting of crystal not of glass, neither massive nor filled with liquid, the source of light that gives the best result for this mirror is that of ordinary alcohol burnt in which we have previously macerated a sharp pinch of hemp flowers per liter for 24 hours. The light obtained by this method vacillates, spreading narcotic fumes very softly, which helps with the success of the operation. Lanson, 1907. Ernest Bosk, another 20th century hashish initiate, was obviously influenced by Carignet's work, as he also gives his recipe containing cannabis and other psychoactive plants for the construction of narcotic mirrors. Bosk recorded the following in his book, Les Mirrors Magiques. These mirrors were at one time in great vogue. They are based on this observation that the atoms of a narcotic plant sometimes greatly facilitate visions, causing it to smell of the fragrance of the plant and even the flower. Bosk, 1912. As noted in Chapter 2, Bosk also recommended burning from cannabis or hashish for the similar practice of scrying by smoke. Bosk, 1907. Eugene Grosch, Gregor A. Gregorius, 1888-1864, the German founder of an OTO offshoot, or possibly a disguised OTO lodge, the somewhat sinister Fraternitas Saturni, was also an enthusiast of drug-infused mirror scrying, and in 1920s-30s Berlin, before being chased out by the Nazis in 1936, he, quote, taught mirror magic. He also prescribed cocaine, peyote extracts, and advocated the use of hashish. Gordon, 2008. Grosch's form of magic was definitely on the darker side, and no subject seems to have been taboo for his lectures or pamphlets. Even prior to the 1930s, he was openly tackling subjects like homosexuality and eroticism and vampirism and blood magic. Grosch's magical newsletters were clear enough about drugs. Lodge School Discourse 7, 1930, informed its reader that extract of peyote cactus was available through the publishers, also enthusiastically advocating the use of hashish. Koenig, 1994. He also advised his own version of the magic mirror. And there's a beautiful uh, art uh, image here that shows that, the Magische Spiegel from Berlin, occult Buchhandlung. Very cool. You should all get this book, of course, Lieber 420, on Amazon for a few bucks. After World War II, when prohibition of cannabis had completely fallen over the Western world, talk of these practices and recommendation of this age-old technique virtually disappeared. And if they were still being used by individuals or occult organizations, we can be sure they had good reason not to advertise that fact. However, personal correspondence with the Masonic brother P.D. Newman indicates that at least some modern occultists and groups have kept up this practice into the 20th century. I don't know why Chris Bennett needed P.D. Newman to tell him that, since he should know very well that all of us are still doing all of these practices. Very weird. Clearly, the combined use of cannabis and other substances with magic mirrors and other scrying techniques was a popular and effective method that was utilized by the mystically inclined for some centuries. If not a doorway to an actual astral realm, even a skeptic would have to admit it was an effective way of projecting out aspects of the subconscious mind into the seemingly visible world. The use of cannabis seems to have been particularly effective to this end, 
and we have seen from references in the Seferaziel from the 16th century down to the late 19th and early 20th century world through occultists like Dupotet, Carnet, Randolph, Lanson, and Bosque. Perhaps only the mirror itself might reveal how much more widely this technique was used than that. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.